This is the podcast of Theophilus Church. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com. Welcome, everyone. Good evening. <laughs> Happy to be up here again. It's very fun and nerve-wracking. <laughs> um, yeah, I... I'm really happy to be here, and if um, I like what Cameron's been doing lately when he preaches to just tell you the point at the beginning, in case you miss it along the way, you just know right away you've already heard it. So my point tonight <laughs> is that you are loved, and I warned you last week that I might cry, or last time I preached that I might cry, and then I didn't. That was so weird. So this time I might cry again, and that's going to be awesome. But I feel this, and I know like many of you do, I feel this so deeply in my heart, um, and yet I struggle with it so much um, on a day-to-day, minute-by-minute um, occasion. So um, I want to unpack this uh, story of the transfiguration with you and mostly land on this idea that you are loved. So keep that in your mind as we talk. Um, so as Cameron said, last time I was up here, I talked a little about Jesus's baptism. It was the first week of Epiphany, and it's that idea, that aha, light bulb moment of realizing that Jesus is divine, that he's God's son and God himself. So this week is the last week of Epiphany, as Cameron said, and we're going to look at another story of Jesus's divinity being confirmed. And this story actually has the exact same phrase that was in the baptism story. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So let me pray really quick, and then I'll jump into some things about the story. Oh, dear Jesus, thank you for this night. Thank you that we could be here together. Lord, I've got nothing without you. So please speak through me tonight, Lord. Keep moving in the way you already have during worship. And please let the words that are from you to stick in people's hearts and the ones that aren't to just roll off. Speak to us, Lord, and help it to sink into our hearts how deeply and unconditionally loved we are by you. Amen. So when I first got signed up to preach these two weeks during Epiphany, um, Andy just uh, emailed me, told me some dates that I could preach, and then he emailed me uh, the passages that go with them, the scripture passages. And so I started reading through them. And then um, I realized that in each of the weeks that I was preaching, there was this phrase, um, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I was very surprised that this was true because I actually did not know that that was in the Bible more than once. So I was really surprised that it could be in the two passages that I got to preach on. Um, and so I felt like that was a sign from God that maybe I should actually preach on them uh, as the main point of this story tonight. But uh, then all of a sudden I thought, oh, wait, maybe Andy and Cameron are actually just like had planned ahead a bunch and actually assigned me these because they have that passage. So I asked Andy and he was like, no, that was just the spirit of God. So, <laughs> so I'm trusting God that this is what I'm supposed to talk about tonight. Um, but yeah, so I was thinking about this phrase a lot. And so what I want to talk with you guys tonight about, um, before we talk a lot about the phrase is just about the context of the story and about, um, uh, the context of the, where the phrase was said, and then also the timing of this story. And then, um, we'll talk about the phrase itself. So let me get some water. 
So as far as the context goes, um, Jewish people believed and still believe that an anointed one, usually a king or a priest, would come and usher in an age of peace and perfection that they called the Messianic Age. They were watching and waiting for that time and for the Messiah that had been written about throughout Scripture. Um, Because I didn't live in their time, and I'm not Jewish, I don't have a good sense of what it might have felt like to watch and wait for the one who would bring the Messianic Age. I do, however, know what it's like to hope and wait and watch for the signs of something. This weekend, I feel like I was doing a lot of hoping and waiting and watching for the signs of spring. I feel like in every tree I see, I'm like looking up close to see if the little buds are about to spring out some leaves or um, the weather today was so crazy. That I was like, go spring, oh, winter, ah, oh, spring, you know. <laughs> so, um, so I've been doing a lot of watching and waiting. Um, but more significantly in my life, um, I've hoped and watched and waited for a child. Um, I remember when I was hoping to get pregnant with our first daughter, Lucy, um, and how watchful I was for any sign that I might be pregnant. Am I just tired from work or is that pregnancy tiredness? Am I just being particular to want a burger from one restaurant and fries from another or is that pregnancy cravings? (laughs) That one really was pregnancy cravings. That wasn't, I wasn't particular. (laughs) Um, Jesus's followers and disciples were in the same place of hoping, watching, and waiting for the Messiah. There were many things prophesied about the coming Messiah in Scripture, but the main ones that apply to this transfiguration story are that the Messiah would be sent by God, would be like Moses, and would come and free the people from their oppression, and that Elijah would appear before the Messianic age began. So again, that's that. The the person would be sent by God, would be like Moses, and that Elijah would appear. So these are a few of the many expectations that the people had and were possibly watching for in Jesus. Um, Last time I preached, I talked a little bit about Jesus's baptism and how at the time of his baptism, this was at the beginning of his ministry, and the people around Jesus were just beginning to realize that he might be the Messiah. God speaks at Jesus's baptism and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So we know from that story that this Jesus was, number one, sent by God. In the time between the baptism and this transfiguration story, Jesus has done numerous miracles, healed the sick, freed the oppressed, preached the Sermon on the Mount, and taught and ministered in many other ways. I imagine that the momentum was building in the disciples' minds and hearts and in the people who were following Jesus. They started seeing signs of the Messiah and were thinking, Could this be the one who will fulfill all the prophecies in Scripture? Could he be the one to bring the long-awaited age of peace and perfection? For me, when I was pregnant, I was so thankful for all the signs that confirmed that I actually was, because it's an amazing process that's really hard to believe. Inside your seemingly same body you've had for your whole life, suddenly there is growing this other little life. I was thankful for the chance I had to hear Lucy's heartbeat at the doctor's appointments or when I first started feeling her kick. Such a weird feeling. Um, These signs are what kept my hope alive. Jesus's followers were feeling this hope and anticipation as Jesus's ministry progressed. And then something else happens. 
Some days in my pregnancy, I wouldn't feel Lucy kick as much, especially at the end of the pregnancy when you're really as stretched as far as you can and the baby gets so squished in there that they can barely move themselves and they slow down in their kicks sometimes. It's on those days that I remember feeling a panic and I've sat with some of you in that same panic. Was all this hope and anticipation in vain? Will this new season I've been anticipating not actually come? The disciples have this same experience in chapter 16, right before this story. Jesus has just finished telling his disciples, starting in verse 21, that very soon he's going to suffer, die, and be raised again. And they are shocked. The disciples have slowly been getting their hopes up more and more for what Jesus will do as the Messiah. And they're all dreaming, I imagine, that they're all dreaming the way that he will, might take power and save the people. Instead, he begins telling them that he will suffer and die. I imagine that they were probably either in disbelief or majorly discouraged at this point. The person they had put their hopes in that was supposed to come and free the people, like Moses had in Exodus, had possibly set up a new kingdom or government and rule over it, was now talking to them about suffering and dying. It's in this emotional state that we arrive at chapter 17. As Cameron read, Jesus goes up onto a high mountain with three of his closest friends, and the friends have an experience of God that confirms to them yet again who Jesus is. It encourages them to be reminded that this is God's beloved son, the Messiah. So they go up on the mountain. Jesus is transfigured, and his face and clothes are shining with light. Then they see Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus, and Peter offers to build shelters for them. And in the midst of him telling his plan, a bright cloud covers the disciples, and a voice from the cloud says, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him or listen to him. The cloud goes away and it's just Jesus left there with his disciples. And Jesus says, get up and don't be afraid. And then they go back down the mountain together. When I first started studying this, I read through a bunch of times and just thought, what? What is going on here? On a mountain with some friends, Jesus is shining. Moses and Elijah are there. I don't know what they have to do with it. God's voice speaks from a cloud saying he's well pleased with his son. How are these things all in the same story and what is this story? Now, if I were a Jewish person in Jesus's time, I may know the narrative about the coming messianic age and the person, the Messiah, that was supposed to usher in that age. You would probably heard this story and you would as you heard this story, you would see the numerous clues about Jesus being the Messiah and feel that hope and anticipation build yet again for that time you'd been waiting for for so long. Just like when I was pregnant with Nora, which is my second daughter, uh, I knew the story and experience of being pregnant so well that I knew what to watch for. Kyle knew it so well also. He knew it so well that every time I accidentally fell, fell asleep on the couch, like two minutes into what we were watching, he would freak out like, are you pregnant? <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> I think I'm just tired. <laughs> but eventually I was. We had Nora. Um, I want to look for a minute at these few clues um, so you can see the significance of this story. Remember, some of what they were looking for was someone sent by God 
who was like Moses and an appearance of Elijah. So in the transfiguration story, Jesus is shown to be like the prophets, Moses and Elijah, and yet greater than them. For example, Moses also went up on a high mountain when he went to get the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19, and God's presence showed itself as a cloud, just like this story. And when he came down from that experience, his face was also radiating light. This story has a mountaintop experience, the transfiguration does, in which God speaks from a cloud, and Jesus is radiating light. Jesus was like Moses, but greater. Moses radiated light because he was reflecting God's light, a reflection of him. Jesus shone light from within. God's light was already in him, and that light radiated out of him. Elijah was also present, which was significant because their belief that Elijah would come again. So having Moses and Elijah there in the story helps us to see that this was part of um, fitting with the, the prophecies that were there in the scripture. Jesus would be like Elijah in that he was a suffering servant, but he would be greater in Elijah than Elijah because his suffering would ultimately conquer death itself. God was reminding the disciples and Jesus himself that despite the suffering they were about to experience, and despite the Messiah's path looking different than they had imagined, that Jesus was God's beloved son and the one that God had sent to save his people and usher in God's kingdom. If you want to study this story further, you should look at how each part of this phrase, beloved son, well-pleased, and listen to him, also, I'll refer back to Old Testament stories of Moses or prophecies about the Messiah. It's interesting. Um, so now that we're understanding more of the context for this phrase, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, let's take a look at the timing. When I talked to Cameron about this uh, sermon last week, he was saying, I think it's significant the timing um, at which Jesus, uh, God says this phrase to Jesus. And so I was thinking a little bit about that. And I was thinking how, you know, the first time that uh, God says this about Jesus, it's when he's at his baptism, and the second is at this transfiguration. It's significant that God spoke this phrase at the beginning of his ministry and towards the end of his ministry. At the beginning, the baptism, Jesus hadn't done anything for God yet. He hadn't done any of his miracles or amazing things that could help him to earn God's favor. God speaks to Jesus before he has done anything and says, You are my son, my beloved, and I am pleased with you. This is significant for someone like me that often feels like I have to earn God's love. My brother just had a baby over a year ago, and he was telling me about the feelings that washed over him when he became a dad and started caring for his son. I have these same feelings. The feelings that without uh, without this baby ever doing something for you, you love them unconditionally. I uh, crowdsourced this time to get some pictures, which I don't have, so don't get too excited, but I, I uh, asked my small group to send me pictures of either them as babies or the, uh, their, their own babies as babies, and they were super cute. Only one member of our small group was brave enough to actually send one of themselves as a baby, and that was Will. So I just have to say, good job, Will. They're not here tonight, but um, he was super cute baby. <laughs> um, but just imagine these babies, or look at the ones that are around here, as you think about the fact that 
you know, when, when a baby is small and they haven't done anything to give their love back, they can't even smile back at you when they're first born yet. Um, when the baby's just pooping and sleeping and you still see them and think, they are wonderful. They are the joy of my life. God speaking about Jesus' belovedness before his ministry even began reminded Jesus and reminds us that we can't earn God's favor or our belovedness. It's also interesting that the baptism story is told from Jesus' perspective. It's not totally clear in the passage who else heard God's voice at that baptism story, um, but we know that Jesus did. God chose to remind Jesus of his belovedness before he did anything in his ministry. Jesus was able to then live out of that belovedness as the center of all that he did. The second time God spoke this phrase, he spoke it toward the end of Jesus's ministry, as we just talked about. This time around, this phrase stood as a reminder and encouragement in the face of suffering. This transfiguration story is told from the disciples' perspective. It says they went up on the mountain together and they saw Jesus, you know, radiating light. And it is clear that the disciples heard this same message. This is God's son, his chosen one, his beloved one and God is pleased with him. As Jesus and his disciples head into this season of suffering and doubt through the crucifixion, God is reminding them of his love. God seems to be communicating that Jesus is beloved, no matter what he does, ministry or no ministry, and no matter what happens to him, abandonment, suffering, death, he is God's beloved. And that message that God speaks to Jesus is the same that he speaks to us as his children. So let's, now that we've talked a little bit about the context and the timing, let's talk a little bit about the actual meaning of this phrase and how it applies and what it means for us as people and what it means for us as a church. In both the stories, God speaks audibly to confirm Jesus's identity. He says, this is my son. I've been wondering, if I were to fill in the end of this sentence about my own child, how would I end it? There are so many things I could say. This is my daughter, Nora. She's hilarious. <laughs> this is my daughter, Lucy. She loves to read. There are so many things that God could have said about Jesus, but he chose to identify him as his son and say that he was loved. Here's the phrase from a few different translations so you can hear it in different ways. From the NIV, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. King James says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The Living Bible says, this is my beloved son and I am wonderfully pleased with him. And the message finally, this is my son marked by my love, focus of my delight. The word beloved in Greek is agapetos something like that. It means divinely loved, loved by God, or personally experiencing God's agape love. If you've read C.S. Lewis's Four Loves book, you know that agape love is God's unconditional love for us. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, one of my favorite Bibles, um, this love is described as God's never-ending, never-giving-up, always-and-forever love. Um, in preparation for this sermon, my dad introduced me to Henry Nouwen's book, Life of the Beloved. Here it is. And um, has anyone else read this? It's 
Very good. Good job, Dad. So my dad and mom are here, and I'm so excited to have them. <laughs> They're big fans. <laughs> <Just joking. laughs> um, and so my dad told me about this book, and I was really thankful because he just talks all about being beloved, and it was so perfect for this sermon. So I don't know if you guys were here that time when Andy told, did that sermon where he just read a Bonhoeffer sermon. So I'm just going to read this book to you. <laughs> no, I really, I'm going to read some of it, but not the whole thing. <laughs> um, but Henry Nouwen is a Catholic priest, and he wrote this book after a friend that was not religious or spiritual um, asked him to write a book for him about the spiritual life. And so this is Henry Nouwen's best uh, attempt at t- trying to communicate um, the core of a spiritual life. And he orients the whole thing around this concept of being the beloved. So I'm going to read a little bit about what he says about being beloved. Being the beloved expresses the core truth of our existence. I'm putting this so directly and so simply because, though the experience of being the beloved has never been completely absent from my life, I never claimed it as my core truth. I kept running around in it, large... I kept running around it in large or small circles, always looking for someone or something able to convince me of my belovedness. It was as if I kept refusing to hear the voice that speaks from the very depth of my being and says, you are my beloved, on you my favor rests. That voice has always been there, but it seems that I was much more eager to listen to other louder voices saying, prove that you are worth something, Do something relevant, spectacular, or powerful, and then you will earn the love you so desire. Meanwhile, the soft, gentle voice that speaks in the silence and solitude of my heart remained unheard, or at least unconvincing. That soft, gentle voice that calls me the beloved has come to me in countless ways. Now, and organizes his book around the idea that being beloved looks kind of like communion, He says that we are taken, like we take the bread, or Jesus took the bread. We're blessed, like he blessed it and prayed for it. Broken and given, just like Jesus did with his disciples in that first communion. So for now, the concept of being taken is kind of similar to being chosen. It means that we're specifically chosen by God in all our uniqueness. Now says, and here's another quote, From all eternity, long before you were born and became a part of history, you existed in God's heart. Long before your parents admired you or your friends acknowledged your gifts or your teachers, colleagues, and employers encouraged you, you were already chosen. The eyes of love had seen you as precious, as of infinite beauty, as of eternal value. When love chooses, it chooses with a perfect sensitivity for the unique beauty of the chosen one. And it chooses without making anyone else feel excluded. We touch here a great spiritual mystery. To be chosen does not mean that others are rejected. To be chosen as the beloved of God is something radically different. Instead of excluding others, it includes others. Instead of rejecting others as less valuable, it accepts others in their own uniqueness. It is not a competitive, but a compassionate choice. What this means for us is that we don't have to fight for our place in the family. 
We don't have to compete with one another about who is most loved. We don't have to worry about who's doing the most at church, who's been here the longest, who's the most well-loved. My being loved by God doesn't diminish your being loved by God. Instead, we get to call out our belovedness in one another, and that's what Nouwen calls being blessed. So when we are blessed, he says that blessing is the most significant affirmation we can offer, and it is more than praise or appreciation, more than pointing out someone's talents or good deeds. It's more than putting someone in the light. To give a blessing is to affirm, to say yes to a person's belovedness. This means that we see each other's belovedness and speak that back to each other. When we're aware of our own chosenness and our blessedness, we're able to take in the reality that we're also broken. He says this one's like the easiest to believe in in these topics, that it's a lot easier for us to get a brain around that we're broken because we see it in the world and we see it in ourselves. So he says, broken means that we will suffer like Jesus also suffered, but that in suffering, we see our belovedness as well. Brokenness is so evident in our world and in ourselves, brokenness of heart and of body. Now one suggests that first we befriend our brokenness, meaning we don't ignore it or keep it at arm's length, but actually bring it close, experience it, and be familiar with it. He says, this is a quote from him, my own experience with anguish has been that facing it and living through it is the way to healing. He speaks about how brokenness or suffering often makes us panic, like the disciples in the story earlier, or like me when I'm not feeling my baby's kick, because we think it finally proves the thing we were worried about, that we're not loved or not worthy of love, that we're deserving of suffering, that God isn't actually good. Now and suggests that we see our suffering in the light of our belovedness, that we have a God that loves us unconditionally, that there can be, and this is another quote, peace beyond the anguish, life beyond death, and love beyond fear. You are beloved, and because of that, you can endure your sufferings. Your belovedness is not at stake in your suffering. In fact, it is what sustains you through the suffering. When we are suffering, we also need others to recognize this belovedness in us. I want to tell you a quick story about my mom. And um, I asked her permission to share this. Um, Only about two minutes on the way before we were coming in. Like, hey, can I share that story? I'm really nervous. Please help me. (laughs) Just joking. She was very kind. Um, But she um, had a significant period of my growing up uh, years where she really struggled with depression. And I know that's a part of many of our stories here. Um, And she had one particularly hard season where she was in bed and she was just having not feeling like she was able to even get out of bed and having this struggle and this conversation with God about, God, I don't think I can ever even get out of bed again. And she has shared with me, and I've just clung to this for so long that um, she felt like she heard God say back to her, Janet, if you never get out of this bed again, I will still love you exactly the same. I can't look at you right now. <laughs> and um, 
that's so meaningful to me because of just that idea that God is with us in our suffering and that we don't have to do anything to get ourselves through it or to produce something because of it, but that he, he does bring us through it and he is with us and present in those moments and that his love is there with us regardless. And lastly, now one says that we are given. Given means that when you get connected to your belovedness, you are compelled to give of yourself to others. When we are secure in God's unending love for us, we want to share it with others. It reminds me of another kid story. <laughs> this is my jam, you guys. <laughs> um, when Nora was two, um, she was like the world's best sharer. She would just, we'd have like a piece of cake or something we were all eating, and she would just be like, you want a bite? It's really yummy. You want some of mine? It's really, it's really good. And I felt like she, she just, she never had a sense that there wasn't enough. She didn't know what we all knew of, like, there's only one piece of cake. Don't share all of your cake with everyone else. But she trusted that there would always be more of this delicious thing to eat. So she shared freely. And the rest of us, meanwhile, were hoarding it, probably. <laughs> um, and we, we love and serve a God of abundance, and he definitely abundantly loves us. So that's not something we need to hold. Like once we have a sense of our own belovedness that we just got to hold on as tightly as we can, that's something that once we get in touch with that or in the times when we're able to be in touch with it, that that love can fill us in to overflowing to where we want to share that um, with other people. Now it says, in giving, it becomes clear that we are chosen, blessed, and broken, not simply for our own sakes, but so that all we live finds its final significance in its being lived for others. Part of why I love Nowen and feel a connection to him is that he lived in a community of people with and without intellectual disabilities. And I think I've mentioned in other sermons that uh, most of my clinical work as a therapist so far has been with children with disabilities. Because of this, a lot of times when I'm learning something about God, I think about how it applies to my friends and clients with disabilities. If it doesn't fit for them, then I don't want it to fit for me. When Nowen talks about this concept of being given to others, he makes a distinction between our talents and our gifts. Many of the people he lived with did not evidence tangible talents that the world would celebrate but that does not mean that they did not have gifts to offer. He talks about the gift of our presence, the gift of friendship, of kindness, of joy, and of empathy, among many others. Whether or not we have talents or skills that we recognize, we all have gifts to share with one another. These gifts find their origin in the fact that we are loved by God and each other. After reading Nouwen's book, I tried to picture what it would look like to truly live like someone who is personally experiencing God's unconditional love. I imagined that I would be at peace and let go of my striving, that I would have joy and let go of my fear, that I would be sure enough of my place in the family, that I could stop fighting or hoarding and reach out and love. I have just a couple examples from this week that are so silly. I know there's like grand things that this applies to, but the things I think of are that I have this sticky note on my big mirror in my kitchen that just says loved. 
I just like wrote it on there one day when I was looking at myself in the mirror, like, oh no, ah, oh. And then I realized, okay, hold on a second. You're loved. <laughs> Calm it down. So I have that on there and it reminds me a lot. Um, and then even just this week, I was having a, I was cooking a dinner for my own family and I was panicking because it was falling apart and becoming awful. And I was just like, you're loved. You're loved. But I think if you can practice things in the small moments, it helps it to be ready for you there in the bigger moments. Um, and so the bigger moments that I've told myself this in are, you know, when people reject me, when people don't love me back, or when I've hurt someone and I don't think I can recover from it, um, when God feels far, when I don't hear his voice, to know and to speak to myself that I am loved. So church, just as Jesus is God's beloved, we are God's beloved. God tells us this at the beginning of our lives, before we have ever done anything to earn it or prove it. He reminds us of it when we are blessed by him and by others. He shows us that even in the midst of suffering, we are beloved. And he invites us to let our belovedness overflow in the way we give to others. Um, the communion servers and worship team can come up now. I know I'm a little early, but I'm loved. <laughs> um, we're going to take some time to remember our belovedness together by taking communion. Let's remember that we're deeply loved by God. We are chosen, blessed, broken, and given. Uh, please know that there are communion stations in the front here and one in the back, and that there's gluten-free bread in the little bowls. And most importantly, know that all are welcome at this communion table. If you feel led during the service or after um, to share a blessing with someone, I would encourage you to do that. I'm just really praying that our community can continue to be one that blesses each other by seeing our lovedness and reminding each other of that. Um, let me pray for us. Dear Lord, thank you for your love. Lord, I wrestled so much with how to communicate this so that it would sink into people's hearts. But thankfully, I don't have to be the one to make it sink in, Lord, that you speak to us over and over about this every day and every minute, Lord. I pray that we would have the ears to hear and the eyes to see the way that you are loving us unconditionally, that that would sink into our hearts, that we would be able to bless each other, remind each other of our belovedness, that we would remember that you are here and you are loving us in our suffering and that you would help us as we feel filled with your love to be able to reach out to others and to give to those around us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would continue to move in our church, in our community, and beyond these walls, Lord. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Theophilus Church. We hope you've been inspired and challenged by what you've heard. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com.